Here's a question. During the mass transatlantic emigration in the 17th and 18th centuries, where do you think the majority of men, women and children on board British ships were actually coming from? England? Scotland? Ireland, perhaps? Actually, they were African, kidnapped and transported in their millions to the British colonies in the Caribbean and North America, where they would be sold for profit as slaves. But how many of us today understand the ongoing legacies of that forced emigration? Britain's slaving past is something that in many quarters people don't want to talk about. It's a bit like the mad woman in the attic. It is something that needs to be acknowledged. In recent years, there have been growing efforts to investigate and lay bare the many ways in which Britain benefited from that brutal 200-year trade in enslaved Africans. But what if those investigations lead to your own front door and start to shatter your family myths? To my mind, my family seemed like very sort of passive, nice gentleman farmers who for centuries, that's where all their money had come from. But the more I looked at it, I began to realise that actually it was my ancestor who was in charge of running probably one of the biggest slave-owning states in the world. And he was a very brutal man. I'm Mukti Jain Campion, and in this episode, I'm lifting the curtain on one of the darkest corners of British emigration history. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 4, Emigration and Enslavement. The closeness of the place... The heat of the climate added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each had scarcely space to turn himself, almost suffocating us. This produced copious perspirations, so that the air soon became unfit for respiration, from a variety of loathsome smells that brought on a sickness among the slaves, of which many died, thus falling victim to the avarice of their purchasers. This wretched situation was aggravated by the galling of the chains, which had now become unsupportable, and the filth of the tubs into which children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the women and the groans of the dying rendered the whole scene almost inconceivable. A description by Olauda Equiano of his experience as an 11-year-old child aboard a British slave ship crossing the Atlantic in the middle of the 18th century after being kidnapped from his village and sold to British slavers. The transportation of enslaved Africans across the Atlantic was tied to British emigration almost from the beginning of the 17th century colonisation, first of North America and very soon after of the Caribbean, as British settlers progressively took control of islands such as Barbados, St Kitts and, largest of all, Jamaica. The main interest for a lot of the settlers who arrived, these were planters who wanted to develop an agricultural crop that could prove to be lucrative as a trading item for British commerce and a merchant capital. And that turned out to be sugar. Professor Matthew Smith is a historian born and raised in Jamaica, where until recently he taught at the University of the West Indies. And sugar required massive outlays of labour, land and capital. And to get the labour, there was initially 
a system of indentured servitude, as it was called, in which migrants arrived in the Caribbean from England and across entire what we now call the United Kingdom, who uh, came in search of jobs and land and work and life. A lot of them ended up laboring on these early plantations that formed these estates that were producing tobacco, sugar, and coffee. But as the scale increased of production and the demand for it increased in Europe of sugar production, there needed to be larger labor forces that would be tied to these estates. And that is when the system of slavery really expands tremendously by about the last quarter of the 17th century. It's been estimated that over the course of the 18th century, there were more than four times as many Africans as Europeans, leaving their homelands for the British Atlantic colonies. This brought about a huge transformation of the population of the Caribbean. The demography of the black population in the Caribbean vastly outnumbered that of the white population. The indentured servants as a labor force, became less reliable and less numerous as the centuries progressed and as the demand for large enslaved labor increased. The planters also were famous in many of the islands for being absentee planters and that a lot of their estates were run by attorneys and estate managers and so forth. So what you found is by the time you get into the 18th century, the majority of the islands that were given over to large-scale sugar production, had a population of roughly, by some of the best estimates by historians, we're talking about 10 to 1. For every 10 black persons, there would be one British person. In the first half of the 18th century, Bristol became Britain's biggest slavery port, at the apex of the so-called triangular trade, with hundreds of ships departing for West Africa each year. In the early 1700s, this was a a bustling place when Bristol's involvement in the the trade in enslaved Africans who were forcibly transported from West Africa aboard Bristol ships over to the Caribbean and North American colonies. Over 500,000 Africans were exported aboard Bristol ships, forcibly kidnapped, really, during the uh, 1700s. Madge Dresser is Honorary Professor of History at Bristol University. She's the author of the seminal book, Slavery Obscured. Her painstaking research was among the first to lift the lid on Bristol's intricate involvement with the transatlantic slave trade. When the ships went out to West Africa from this port, where they went out and traded, there's a list of suppliers to one of the Bristol ships that was bound for Africa, which showed some of the goods that were being traded there. They included guns that would be sold to the West African warlords with whom they were trading in exchange for enslaved people and other goods, but also things like food, manacles, uh, brandy, but also things like that you wouldn't expect, like hats. In the ports of Western Africa, they would trade these goods for human cargo. The majority of the people taken aboard the British slaving ships in the 18th century were seized by local middlemen in the interior of what's now southeast Nigeria. They were marched for many days to the coastal trading towns where they were handed over to men who spoke a language they couldn't understand and with little idea of where they were being sent. And so began the horrendous Atlantic crossing known as the Middle Passage. The ships were very small in the early 18th century, so we're talking about three or four hundred people, you know, crowded aboard. 
the journey to the Caribbean could take anything between five and 12 weeks. Conditions for the captives became more deadly as the journey unfolded. Diseases such as smallpox, dysentery and TB spread quickly in the confined space. The only exercise allowed was a forced daily ritual of jumping to a drum. Any resistance or rebellion was brutally punished. It was common for at least 10% of the captives to die en route, sometimes a lot more. And those who did survive were faced with yet more terror on arrival, as Olauda Equiano described in his memoir. At last we came in sight of the island of Barbados, at which the whites on board gave a great shout. Many merchants and planters came on board, though it was evening. They examined us attentively. They put us in separate parcels. They also made us jump. We thought we should be eaten by these ugly men, and there was much dread and trembling amongst us. We were conducted to a merchant's yard where we were all pent up like sheep in a fold, without regard to sex or age. On a signal given at the beat of a drum, the buyers rushed at once into the yard where the slaves are confined to make choices of their parcel they like best. The noise and clamor and the eagerness of the buyers served not a little to increase the apprehension of the terrified Africans. In this manner, relations and friends are separated. Most never to see each other again. The conditions on the plantations for enslaved people were horrific. Few survived more than six or seven years. But we're talking about intense, hard, back-breaking work that would be done around the clock, especially during the harvest season. And it involved the physical work in the estates of cutting the cane, taking the raw cane into the boiler houses, which would be like furnaces that people had to work in round the clock, stirring and distilling the cane. And then after that, there was a whole production series of preparing that raw sugar for exploitation. To do this required a lot of people, and the work that was done was done by enslaved people. It wasn't just that the labor conditions themselves were so grueling and life-shortening. It was also that the punishment that was deployed on the people and the treatment of them was dehumanizing. And it was dehumanizing because the nature of colonial slavery, not just in the British colonial empire, but also in many of the European empires and indeed in the non-colonial world with the United States after independence, was such that People who were enslaved were considered property. That means they were enumerated on lists and accounts of estate assets as one would enumerate equipment. And that's the crucial difference from how white settlers were treated, even those who came from Britain as indentured servants or convicts. What you have to remember is that a lot of the white people who went out to settle, they came out as sometimes as political prisoners or as, as felons who were transported. Not all were wealthy people, but they were still seen as human beings, unlike the enslaved Africans who were seen as property. And because you had that way of viewing black bodies as property owned, and that ownership, I should add, was passed on by inheritance that the curse of slavery was something that the grandchildren of the grandchildren of the first captives inherited. It was a curse that carried on for generations. And so the treatment of people that were considered property 
or subhuman treatment. And the stories abound in the planters' records of the violence, the brutality, the stripping of identity, of humanity in that entire production process on the estates. And most significantly, and this is important when we consider the legacies of slavery, is the way in which the association of black bodies with manual labor, with dehumanizing circumstances, and not being equipped with the tools for social advancement or even full citizenship, how that would continue long after the Abolition Act. The Atlantic slave trade was just such an opening of opportunity for people in the West to make lots of money and to gain access to new land and new commodities. It was just seen as a fantastic means of social mobility for white people. That social mobility and wealth accrued by people in Britain was not just from the trade in enslaved Africans. After depositing, if you like, these people, the ships would uh, bring back slave-produced goods back to the mainland of Britain where they would be processed. So Bristol had a big processing industry, tobacco milling and sugar refining, and then these would be re-exported. So it's the beginnings of global capitalism, which really starts with the Spanish and the Portuguese, but Britain becomes the ascendant power in the 1700s. And everybody got a cut of the action, if you like. So many jobs were dependent on this that it was really crucial to the prosperity of the city. This is evident in a submission to Parliament by the city's leaders in 1717. Bristolians are dependent for their subsistence on their West Indies and Africa trade, which employs greater numbers of people in shipyards and in the manufacture of wool, iron, tin, copper and brass, a considerable part of which is exported to Africa for the buying of Negroes. Throughout the 18th century, there were objections raised to slavery from many quarters, particularly by Quakers and prominent free black men in Britain, including by now Olauda Equiano, whose 1789 memoir became a publishing sensation. But the majority of the British public found it very easy to avert their gaze to what was happening in distant colonies. That distance meant often that the physical image of slavery, the way in which people are treated, the, the way in which people are housed, the whole of that system was not visible. People could be shielded from that. Even those who did have direct experience of plantation slavery seemed to find a way to justify its morality. This is a Caribbean plantation owner from Bristol called John Pinney, writing to a friend in 1765. Since my arrival, I have purchased nine Negro slaves at St. Kitts. I was shocked at the first appearance of human flesh exposed for sale. But surely God ordained them for the use and benefit of us. Otherwise, his divine will would have been made manifest by some particular sign. As you really get an inflow of wealth into the city, you begin to get people building up the area and having genteel houses being built around it and the evolution of Queen Square with the merchants making you know their money off the slave trade and plantation investments. So for example, if you look at the little Georgian triage of houses just over the docks, this was owned by the Coombe family and they had plantation ownership in Virginia and in their will they actually bequeathed a black child as a servant uh, to one of their descendants. 
The stories of slavery revealed by historians such as Madge Dresser are written in the street names, in buildings and monuments all over Bristol and, of course, all over Britain, as the slave economy extended into virtually every corner of the country. But there are also thousands more stories written into the very DNA of British families. My name's Oliver Colgrave. I'm 29 years old. My dad is a white English guy, very sort of upper middle class, kind of mad professor type type person. He's he's fantastic, fantastic dad. My mum is from a Jamaican family, born and bred in the UK, from Hansworth, she's a Brummie. She met my dad in London working at an ad agency, sort of the 80s. But her mother, my nanny Norma, we call her, uh, she was, I guess, part of the Windrush generation, came over to work in the NHS. Very sort of like, like upwardly mobile, very prim, proper Jamaican family. It was quite difficult for my mum, obviously as a black woman, marrying into a very middle-class white family. So some unpleasantness in the past and some difficulties faced by my, both my parents for just, you know, wanting to be together. Oliver grew up in Kent and attended a prestigious public school, where he eventually became head boy. And I, I often joke and say, well, I didn't really realise I was black until I was about 19. Because I think my parents had done what I think made sense to them, which was not really emphasise race in my upbringing. Because, you know, in, in Kent, going to nice schools, everyone's very polite. As I sort of grew up a bit more and experienced what I would now understand to be like blatant racism in school, I think I remember asking my mum once, like, well, why am I brown? Why, why am I the only brown person in school? Because that was the kind of question you were asked as a, you know, one of maybe three brown people in a school of 500 white people. I remember very vividly when like someone called me the N-word for the first time. It was on a, on a school trip when I was 11. Very clearly the people who called me that were just trying it out, like sort of, you know, to see its power. Um, but it was a very impactful moment. How much did you know about your family history as you were growing up? So in terms of my, my father's side of the family, I mean, they're sort of one of those English families, which is very, very English, but also kind of Scottish. We have a family photo, which has two men in it who look very eerily like my father in a very nice living room in, I'm assuming, India with two servants wearing turbans, sort of standing attentively at the side of the room. I remember being told that X and Y man in that photo was like a great, 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 great uncle or something. So how much did you know about Jamaica? As we were growing up, I don't think it was ever really explicitly talked about in our family. I mean, I always knew Jamaica was a place where there used to be slaves, which is why but most people in Jamaica were black. I also knew that that was why my mum was black. So my mum's family were from Jamaica, but they were also, before they were from Jamaica, from Africa. So I, I sort of always, always knew that. And I don't really remember how I picked up that knowledge. I don't remember if it was something that was told to me by my parents, by my grandparents, or if it was something that I had been read. But the role that British emigration and colonisation had played in Caribbean history was something he says he didn't truly understand until he went to university. I went to Cambridge and I read history, studied a lot of stuff which was either directly related to or tangentially related to British imperial history. Usually in your first and second year, you do a sort of double take and realise, oh no, we, we were the baddies, weren't we? This led to more sparky debates with his dad, with whom he shared his newfound knowledge. We'd have had a series of conversations which were sort of about 
the National Trust, because my mum and dad loved the National Trust. And, and I was sort of very kind of like, oh, but you know, it's all the profits of slavery. Like getting married in a National Trust property would be the same as having a plantation wedding in the South. It's just, you know, further removed from where the money was made. So I sort of always kind of like needle him and, you know, just jokingly kind of challenge him a bit on that. I don't know. I think it had a bit of an effect on him because I showed him the UCL uh, Legacies of Slavery database and that kind of thing. And he seemed really, really interested. Oliver's father is Stephen Colgrave, a co-founder of the Byline Times, an independent investigative newspaper. Oliver, he alerted to me, which was great, was the UCL, University of Coach London, have put together a brilliant database all about slavery and slave ownership. You know, it's great that slavery was abolished by Wilberforce, but what most people don't realise is the slave owners were given huge compensation and the slaves got absolutely nothing at all. An enormous amount of work was put into tracing all the compensation records. Professor Matthew Smith is now the director of the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership at University College London, which created this database. £20 million was paid to planters at the point of emancipation of the Abolition Act as sort of recompense for the loss of their property. And property here is not, again, simply the estates, the land, the acreage, the equipment, but it includes human souls as that property. And recompense for that was an agreement to pay them £20 million in the 1830s into the 1840s. And we need to put that in in perspective. £20 million, that was but a small fraction of the the general profits overall that were made by slave-grown sugar. The other thing to mention, too, is to understand how that compensation contributed to industrialization and finance and commerce in Britain after slavery's end. And the database uh, shows that very clearly. And where this compensation money went is exactly what Stephen Colgrave wanted to explore. Now as executive editor of Byline Times, I had decided to launch a theme of articles about slavery. And I wanted to look at how slavery was was sort of still hidden in this country. Anyway, I was discussing this with Oliver, my son, and we sort of discussed it. And I said to Oliver, look, before I launch on this, I ought to double check, actually, from the family perspective, what's our history with slavery? Because I think, so as not to be a hypocrite, and before I start trying to delve into other people's histories, I, I should do that. So that was really what set me on this journey. Perhaps like in most families, Stephen Colgrave had grown up with a jumble of half-remembered facts and anecdotes about his ancestors. I was this sort of suburban kid, you know, in the 60s, 70s. But every weekend, I went back to my great-aunt's farm down in Sussex. Their house was filled with sort of three or four centuries worth of family heirlooms. I always remember the the dining room uh, door was held open by a cannonball from the Battle of Naseby. My family for a couple of centuries had been sort of gentlemen farmers. But I did hear about our most illustrious ancestor, which was General Tryon. And there were quite a few bits and pieces of his around the house. I was always told to fought with General Wolfe at Quebec, which I think was the, the, the really big battle when the British sealed their dominance over the French for Canada. And uh, my ancestor was very much part of that. And he'd also been, I was told, he was the last colonial general, I think they called it, of New York. So there was always this sort of talk of General Tryon, and my aunt particularly was incredibly proud of him. I mean, my aunts were 
probably very poor actually. I remember my father had to pay all their gas and electric bills and everything because they never had any money, but they actually felt they were very upper class. And, and I think these ancestors were incredibly important in giving them that sort of status. So we had a uniform, we had a watch. I actually had a, a pieces of eight doubloon, which had been overstamped as a silver dollar, which I actually found in his uniform and my aunt said I could keep. So that was my sort of keepsake of him. That treasured silver dollar remained with Stephen as he grew up. It sat tucked away in the drawer of his desk as he began his investigations. William Tryon, he was a very important figure. He was a very successful soldier. He was born in 1729 in Surrey into a well-off family. Actually, I think his uncle had been a colonial general out in India. I think he probably was a younger son. Like, you know, most younger sons, he had to go out and find his fortune. Uh, he fought in lots of wars around Europe, was promoted and promoted. But contrary to the stories that Stephen had heard growing up, there's actually no evidence that William Tryon ever fought with General Wolfe at Quebec. He did, however, go to America some years later. Through family connections, Tryon secured a position in the province of North Carolina, where in 1765 he was promoted by the king to the top role of colonial governor. And a few years later, Tryon moved north, and just as Stevens' answer told him, he became the last colonial governor of New York, where he led British troops and militias during the American War of Independence. I did go in slightly hopeful, <laughs> thinking that he was, you know, as a soldier, he wouldn't have owned any slaves. As I started investigating, I realised that, well, one, he wasn't a particularly pleasant, nice man, which is always difficult to find out. How did you discover that? Well, mainly when I looked at what he'd done in New York. So in New York, I think there was virtually street fighting going on in New York in the War of Independence. And he had allowed his troops to literally rape and pillage. A contemporary report describes what took place. Tryon's desolation warfare shocked many British officers and outraged patriots. Indiscriminate and excessive plunder was witnessed by thousands within the British lines. It appears that no less than 23 rapes were committed in one neighbourhood in New Jersey, some of them on married women in presence of their hapless husbands and others on daughters while the unhappy parents, with unavailing tears and cries, could only deplore the savage brutality. It was really, really harrowing. He'd gone far beyond the normal conventions of war in, in the way he had pursued the campaign. So, you know, I began to realise that he was a, a fairly, yeah, a very brutal man, actually. Shaken by this new knowledge about his hallowed ancestor, Stephen Colgrave switched his attention to researching the five years that Tryon had spent in the South. I knew that if there was anything in terms of slavery, it would have been when he was colonial governor of North Carolina. Actually, as a soldier, I knew he didn't own plantations or anything like that. But I had always slightly underestimated how powerful he was as a colonial governor. I thought it was a fairly sort of ceremonial title. As I did that, I started to research a little bit about North Carolina, and I realised actually it was probably one of the biggest slave economies that the world had ever seen. I mean, slaves sort of powered the whole thing, and a misery powered the whole thing. Enslaved Africans had been brought to North Carolina with the earliest colonial settlers. From the mid-1700s, this included many thousands of migrants from the Scottish Highlands, so that the Gallic language and Scottish surnames became common, including amongst the enslaved Africans in the area. 
all the back-breaking monotonous work of growing and harvesting crops such as tobacco and rice, as well as producing what's known as naval stores such as the tar and turpentine that were vital for the British Navy's ships, all this work was done by enslaved Africans. They were also responsible for the food production that the colonial settlers relied on to survive. The slave owners and the plantation owners were absolutely convinced that they were an economic necessity. Without slavery, you know, the economy would fall apart. A headright system had been introduced to give new settlers more land if they brought slaves to the province. And so over the course of the 18th century, the enslaved population grew dramatically. In some areas, it formed half the total population. When Governor Tryon arrived, well, he arrived as a lieutenant governor, I should say, he arrived in a, in a place where slavery was already established. Historian Sally Haddon is an associate professor at Western Michigan University. She grew up in North Carolina and has studied the treatment of enslaved Africans there in the 18th century. So he walked into a situation where slavery was common. His role in it would have been to make sure that there was no insurrection that would have created a problem that would have threatened the continued existence of the colony that he was in charge of. One thing he might have been concerned about was a recent, relatively recent, slave insurrection that had taken place in neighboring South Carolina. In 1739, there'd been an uprising along the Stono River. We often refer to that as the Stono Rebellion. Uh, in that uprising, dozens of slaves came together, attacked whites, and then were moving south to try to get to freedom among the Spanish in Florida. And the possibility that the same might happen on his watch in North Carolina probably would have given him some cause for concern. The larger the slave population became, obviously that might help the economy, but that also might put the, the local settlements at risk. Strict laws were introduced from 1715 onwards to control the movement of enslaved black people and to limit their right to gather. They were also prohibited from learning to read and write. There was a constant fear of runaways and slave rebellions, and the way such stories were reported, including back in Britain, created an exaggerated sense of black people as inherently violent, untrustworthy and menacing. Attitudes which became entrenched and survived long beyond the abolition of slavery. The treatment of African and African-descended peoples is one of the weakest and darkest chapters of our history. So there's, there's physical control, there's effectively social control to try to limit everything that an enslaved person might want to do that an owner did not want. A prominent feature of Governor Tryon's regime in North Carolina would have been slave patrols, the subject of a meticulously researched book by Sally Haddon. Slave patrols were expected to maintain order. They were akin, one might say now, to the police. They were put into place in the 1750s as a mechanism of social control over African and African-descended people. Each patrol would have been made up of two or three dozen armed white men, recruited from the county tax register. Their job was to go around typically at night to local farms along local roads to find enslaved people who were out at night without a ticket, who were away from the places where they were supposed to be. Slave patrols were also supposed to go into slave cabins and search for contraband goods. So they're supposed to search for things that didn't belong there or people who didn't belong there. Patrols exist to stop behaviors 
that whites found anxiety producing, uh, whatever they might have been. For the enslaved population, there was no recourse to justice. The slave patrol literally had the upper hand to do as they saw fit. They could inflict corporal punishment. That is to say, they could use uh, a whip. We have reports of individuals who would be bound with ropes or, or with leather thongs who would be pulled behind horses as they were taken off either to a jail or back to the farm where their owner might live. I began to, to realize the amount of abuse that must have gone on. I mean, it just is just, just awful when you look at it, the, the levels of depravity that were involved in this. Uh, but then when you realize this was systematic, and it was my ancestor, you know, he had an executive role in that. So that was pretty, you know, that was pretty gut-wrenching to start looking at that and understanding his role in that. But then I was seized by wanting to find out, did he actually own slaves himself? And I sort of knew that the only place to look would be in terms of household slaves. Eventually, I did find the names of his household. And in the household, there was somebody called Surrey, S-U-R-R-Y, who looked very much like a slave. It didn't say that. But then I, I thought I'd take that name and I'd then research that name and try and. And then I actually found an advert. North Carolina Gazette, Newburn, July 25th, 1777. $3 reward. Runaway, a Negro man named Surrey, about five and six inches high, about 30 years of age, well made, is rather yellowish and carried within many different suits of clothes. The said fellow is a new Negro that speaks pretty good English. He was formerly the property of Governor Tryon and now belongs to the estate of Isaac Edwards, deceased. Whoever secures him so that I may get him again shall have the above reward. So I could now absolutely prove that this slave, Surrey, had been owned by General Tryon. That not only had he he'd been you know, in charge of running probably one of the biggest uh, slave-owning states in, in the world, he also had owned at least one slave himself. So in a sense, I, I'd now proved that he was a, a slave owner. With his investigation complete, Stephen Colgrave sat down to write his article about what he discovered in his family's past. As I was writing the article, I pulled my drawer open and, and there was this silver dollar overprinted over this doubloon, pieces of eight, which, you know, really from the age of nine had been my most favoured and treasured possession and was in my drawer. And suddenly I felt I, d I just didn't want to own it anymore. I just wanted to give it away or give it to a charity shop or something like that. It just suddenly felt almost hot to my hand. My dad had been almost indoctrinated to think that this guy was worthy of being venerated. When he told me he'd done this and I read the article, first of all, I was like, Dad, I'm so, so incredibly proud of you for doing this. Basically, he completely removed a childhood hero from his own life. How did you feel about what your dad had uncovered? It was interesting because I, I'd always assumed I had slaveholder DNA in me somewhere, just because of, you know, the instances of slave rape and the fact that I have a, a mother from Jamaica. So I just assumed I was related to slaveholders. But it was very interesting to realise, oh no, well, of course, now on the other side, and, th and there's, there's the guy, there's the name, this is where he was, this is how many people he owned. I think it made me reappraise what being mixed race means. Oliver is a product of both of us. In a sense, he's the person who has to deal with, with this as well, because this is within his genes as well as mine. In a way, he's got these, both these histories to contend with. I think, you know, it's very important to remember that, that I bring privilege with me as, long, as well as, like, histories of oppression. 
and sort of redouble my efforts to make sure that I'm not someone who falls into this idea of, I guess, a black and white victim oppressed narrative. I think it's always much more complicated. Though I found this quite a a personal and quite a difficult journey to go and write this article, it's also filled me with determination to now look more deeply. Back here in our own society here, the shadow, I think it's almost like a shadow, a dark shadow really, which I think that we are very much in denial about. I love Georgian furniture and Georgian houses. And, and also in a weird way, this has also made me realise that virtually every Georgian house and every lovely piece of Sheridan furniture I see was probably actually paid for off the back of the misery of slavery. When you start to think about that, probably anyone who was part of the middle class in the 18th century, that was their history. So, you know, if you really wanted to be rich and prosperous in Britain in the 18th century, to have a big house, marry the right person, be part of society, you went out in a far off place and did dirty, horrible stuff. We are living in the world that people like my ancestor built. In whatever way, I'm, I'm a beneficiary of that. I, I don't know necessarily where the money went, but my family, when I was born, had a particular class position of which my ancestors' actions would have contributed to, no doubt. So that generational wealth, it, where does it come from? Well, it's come from slavery. But that's the same as this whole country. There are probably millions of people around Britain with stories like those of the Colgrave family, of multiple migrations back and forth across the oceans, their effects ricocheting down the generations and creating a complex web of global links. Between 1948 and 1973, more than half a million people migrated to Britain from the Caribbean, like Oliver Colgrave's maternal grandparents. This was the so-called Windrush generation, which carried a very strong connection with what they had grown up believing to be the mother country. They came with a sense of belonging, duty and shared values. So the British government's introduction of the hostile environment policy in 2012 and the resulting Windrush scandal which surfaced in 2018 sent deep shockwaves through the British Caribbean community. Families from Commonwealth countries now caught up in the government's hostile immigration policy. Theresa May's immigration laws to beef up her hostile environment. And this is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants, it is also about fairness. People who'd lived here for decades believing they were full British citizens suddenly found themselves reclassified as illegal immigrants. Thousands were wrongfully detained and threatened with deportation. And at least 160 people have been deported. Professor Matthew Smith again. What was so surprising is that once you have migrated, people would then be treated having gone through that process and having settled and lived and raised children and had careers and lives and jobs and contributed so significantly to the economy and the, the history and the growth of a place to be then told to go back home. And that was quite quite a surprise. I suppose it exposed our sort of, again, speaking from a Caribbean perspective, assumptions as to safety. And that's the thing. A lot of people migrate for safety. It's not just physical safe when you leave places that might be difficult and plagued with violence, but the safety that somehow once you have arrived, you know, life might be hard, Life might be difficult, but you have rights. 
you have status and that will protect you and that will protect your children. And the, the whole Windrush scandal really unsettled that notion of safety. Unsettled. It's a curiously apt word given the vocabulary of migration. To settle implies comfort and the putting down of roots. So what does it say about Britain today if large sections of its population feel increasingly unsettled by ongoing racial inequality? In the summer of 2020, the death of George Floyd in America and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests brought things to a head. Tens of thousands of people took part in further anti-racism protests across Britain today, with the statue of a 17th century slave trader pulled down. Violent counter-protests also flared up, bringing mayhem to central London. Twice over the summer, I was, I was too scared to leave the flat because there were gangs of fascists charging around Zone 1. There were people, you know, the, the Football Lads Alliance were attacking people in Hyde Park. And that was a day where my friends were like, hey, should we go to Hyde Park and meet in the park? And I, I said no. It feels like something has been severed the last few years, particularly. Brexit, the way that nationalism played a role in that was, was sort of the start of that process. I think all I can see is this place getting worse and more perhaps dangerous. And knowing that I'll have children who probably won't be considered whites, I just, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to visualize myself staying here into my old age and raising a family here. And it's sad because I, I like this country. Oliver's thoughts of departure from the country of his birth are a salutary reminder that decisions about migration are rarely just personal. They happen within a context. So uncovering the migration history of Britain is never just an academic exercise. It can profoundly reshape individual lives and how we understand each other today. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani. Historic readings were by Udoko Oyeka and Adrian Prater. The podcast series is a CultureWise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.